Hello and welcome back to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at the Daily Guru and at Get Ear Fuel. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under EarFuel and at GetEarFuel.com. This week, no album review because I'm going to be digging into the history of the censorship of music. But before we get to that, because so many people asked for it, it's time for another brief chapter of EarFuel Storytime. Let's go back to 1974 and one of the wildest moments from one of my all-time favorite bands, the Stooges. We're going to go to February 9th to be exact and Detroit, Michigan. By this point in their career, the Stooges had released their trio of unmatched perfection in the form of their self-titled debut and the raw power and funhouse records. Oh, you need to own those albums. They're so good. Anyway, Iggy Pop is at what might be his most feral and most fearless point in his performing career. And to be honest, there's nobody that can stand next to Iggy when it comes to stage presence. Guy is an animal, and it's amazing to behold. We are talking about the guy that basically invented stage diving. He would cut himself up before and during shows. He vomited it on stage just to make a spectacle. He'd antagonize the audience almost every night. I mean, these were performances like no other. And then you add to that the music of the Stooges chaos in the best way possible. For whatever reason, during an interview on the radio the afternoon of the show, Iggy challenged a local motorcycle gang called the Scorpions to a fight. Why? Who knows? It's Iggy Pop in his prime. These things just sort of happen. Well, as you might guess, the bikers heard the challenge and came to the gig, spending most of the show throwing bottles, eggs, glasses of urine, and apparently a shovel or three at the band. Detroit is a tough town. But Iggy being Iggy, he kept pushing the tension higher, and at one point between songs, he shouted the quote, You pricks can throw everything in the world. Your girlfriends will still love me. We know this is a fact because the audio recording exists, and you can taste the energy. At one point, apparently addressing something the crowd kept saying, Iggy shouted that if they wanted to hear Louie Louie, the band would be more than happy to oblige. Throughout the improvised jam, Iggy kept making up lyrics and battling with the crowd, and you can just feel things coming to a head, which they did. Near the end, Iggy starts to zero in on one single guy in the biker gang, saying that if he heckled him one more time, Iggy would jump down and kick his ass. Now, it doesn't take a genius to guess what happened next, and Iggy delivered on his word, jumping into the crowd and confronting the biker who, along with his gang, beat the crap out of Iggy until security intervened. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't care who you are and what you're on, but 10 to 20 people on one are pretty tough odds to beat. Perhaps not surprisingly, this would be the final show the Stooges played for nearly 30 years, as the band members just couldn't deal with Iggy's antics, and in my opinion, this was a really good idea. Leaving behind that trio of records and basically inspiring the entire punk rock movement, I mean... What more do you want from a band? But this is also a band that can certainly laugh at themselves in retrospect, and this concert was formally released, well, the second half, as the Metallic KO record in 1976. Now, don't worry, the release cuts down Louie Louie to about four minutes, but you can find the complete version out there if you're one of those people who wants to search the internets. So the next time some band member is trying to be all badass, 
Ask them if they ever challenged an entire biker gang to a fight and actually made good on their word. There is only one Iggy Pop. Moving on. Over the last few months, the idea of censorship in all forms of art and media has been a bit more present than usual. So I felt it was due time that I took a look back at the fascinating and often inexplicable history of the censorship of music. While many people think that this started with Elvis's hips and then kind of went away until the rise of Tipper Gore's Parents Music Resource Group, there's a great deal more on both sides and in between, and trust me when I say there are many moments that will leave you scratching your head. Now I know there are countries that have different histories of music censorship and many countries that have far stricter policies, but for this episode, I'm going to focus on the United States. Also, after putting this together, I realized there was so much I wanted to say and so many moments I wanted to touch on that I've split this into two episodes. Today, we're going to look at the beginnings of censorship and the weird events throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And in the next episode, we're basically going to start with the Parents Music Resource Group. They're the ones who made those really fun parental advisory explicit lyric stickers, and we're going to take that up to the modern day. So let's start back at, um, you know what, let's start at the first true sign that music censorship was going to be a thing. The Radio Act of 1927. Yep, even before the Great Depression here in the United States, the mechanisms to censor music were already in place. I know what you're thinking. What could they possibly have wanted to censor in an era predating proper jazz when music was mostly ragtime and... I don't know, the fading vestiges of vaudeville. Well, there's actually a lot, kind of. You see, the Radio Act of 1927 formally banned the airing of obscene, indecent, or profane language on the U.S. radio airwaves, but it wasn't actually used to find a radio station until 1970. For those of you wondering what could have possibly happened after almost 50 years to make the government actually cite this law, in 1970, none other than... Jerry Garcia from the Grateful Dead was doing an interview on a Pennsylvania radio station, and they were fined because the interview contained comments on sex and excrement. Yep. But back to the 1920s. All radio stations in the U.S. had to abide by these laws, as in 1912, the United States had passed another radio act mandating that all broadcasts in the U.S. be licensed by the federal government. Combine these two radio acts together, and in 1934, Congress created the Federal Communications Commission, better known as the FCC. I know, I know, I know, I know. This podcast isn't a history lesson, but I really need to have a few things in place before we can get to all the fun, dirty, and not-so-dirty words and images. So, the FCC. In short, their job was, and mostly still is, to monitor communications on radio, television, and over the past few decades— that gray area of the internet. Since their creation in 1934, the FCC has been in complete control over what music can legally be played over U.S. airwaves. And as the years passed, they've added countless laws and even had a few incidents of directly censoring music themselves. In short, the main reason that music censorship exists is the existence of the FCC. I'm not saying there's no other way it would have happened without them, But the FCC is really where it all starts and where most issues arise in the present day. 
Even before Elvis and his hips made their way onto the Ed Sullivan Show, the FCC was already pushing their weight around and deciding what the American public could and could not hear. In 1939, Billie Holiday's iconic, chilling song Strange Fruit was banned. The government claimed that it was due to the morbid content, and we know the subtext of that song, and 25 years later, her song Love for Sale was also pulled from radio because the lyrics were basically about prostitution. 20 years later, Link Ray's classic instrumental Rumble was banned from radio. That's right, in 1959, the FCC banned a song that had no lyrics. The argument was that the title, Rumble, was too suggestive of gang violence. No joke. Let that one sink in for a second. Even when he performed the song live on TV, they would never say the name. But this was just the tip of the band music iceberg. Did you know that the classic Shirelles song, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, was banned from the radio? Yeah, it sure was. Because of the mild sexual content, since the song is basically about a one-night stand. Still... That one sold over a million copies. I mean, remember that in their idiocy, the FCC temporarily banned the Who's My Generation because they thought it was offensive to people with a stutter. No, I am not joking. That happened. So it really didn't matter if there was any reason whatsoever that the FCC didn't feel it was good for the American people. You weren't getting on the radio. But when it comes to artists themselves being banned... While Rage Against the Machine found most, if not all, of their music being banned over the years, all the way back in 1952, there was a band called The Weavers. Their music was, well, they were pretty far left of center, and in 1952, the heart of the McCarthy era, they were blacklisted by the FCC. When this happened, the band were dropped from their label, and it pretty much cost them their career. Well, it pretty much cost them their career as a band. One of the main reasons the Weavers got blacklisted is because among the members in writing songs for them was a guy named Pete Seeger. Yep, that Pete Seeger. So if you're wondering why he stands as such an icon of folk and protest music, he was already well-versed in those things even before going solo. Why did Pete Seeger make such a difference in that group? Or, or I suppose more to the point, why were they a target? It was almost 100% due to their political beliefs. Like I said the McCarthy era of politics. A time when anyone even remotely suspected of not being a million percent behind democracy was a full-blooded communist and needed to be removed from existence. And the Weavers got caught up in that mission. And once the government was on them, their career was toast. Granted, their 1955 concert recording from Carnegie Hall was a massive success, but it was released by Vanguard Records, which was an independent label, and the fact that they still couldn't get radio airplay, along with Seeger's rising solo career, sort of made that release a moot point. But still, this to me is the first real example of how the FCC were able to control both what the public were hearing as well as the public perception of a group. At that time, the FCC basically painted the group as communists or communist sympathizers, and the public totally bought into it. See, I think this couldn't happen in modern times. Consider what's happened over the last year to performers who have come out as supporters of President Trump. What if the FCC publicly blacklisted a group claiming that they supported ISIL? Even with all of the powers of social media to combat the claim, a great deal of damage would be done. 
And don't forget, if the FCC blacklists a song or a group, radio stations will be fined for playing those tracks, and in extreme cases, the FCC could revoke a broadcast license if they wanted. Make no mistake, the FCC wields an incredible amount of power, but in sort of a quiet manner. Whew, okay, I'm going to step off my soapbox for a minute here. Let's talk about the Elvis incident. January 6th, 1957, Elvis's third and final appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. This was a time still quite conservative, with crooners like Dean Martin and Bing Crosby at the top of the charts, along with Elvis, of course. Heartbreak Hotel, Don't Be Cruel, his cover of Hound Dog, I mean, the big hits were already well-known, and at the same time, Sullivan's show was dominating television ratings. A strange side story to this is that Presley and Sullivan never really got along. Ed Sullivan was not a fan at all and actually didn't want to book him on either of his previous appearances. In fact, following his second time on the show, Sullivan had stated outright that he never wanted to have him on the show again. However, Elvis was just too big and Ed Sullivan really had no choice. I mean, for a bit of perspective here, during Elvis's second appearance just four months earlier, 60 million viewers tuned in, and at that time, it was more than 80% of the entire television audience. Think about that. 80% of everybody watching TV in the United States that evening was tuned in to Elvis Presley on Ed Sullivan. 80%! That is a massive percentage that has rarely been challenged. Anyway, since Elvis was in his prime, the whole hip gyrating thing was well known and pretty much anyone even slightly leaning towards the conservative side was in an outrage about it on a daily basis. While it seems hilariously nothing by today's standards, in the 50s this was far too sexual for most people to handle and one of the many points where the so-called danger of rock and roll began to take hold. Due to all of the complaints by these conservative folks, the FCC, how to say this, strongly encouraged the producers of Ed Sullivan to find some way of toning down the performance. And they did. But don't buy into the hype that this was some sort of spur-of-the-moment decision. The idea of filming Presley only from the waist up was agreed upon by both sides well in advance. Elvis knew full well, and for many reasons, he didn't care. And neither did those watching, because as salacious as his hips might have been, his face, his hair, and his voice were more than most people could handle. But nevertheless, the FCC did have a strong role in this small censorship. But it wasn't just the Ed Sullivan Show and the FCC making these rules. Hardly. In Houston, Texas, for example, there was a so-called Commission on Juvenile Delinquency and Crime established. And in 1955 they banned about two dozen songs from local airwaves, nearly all of which were by African-American performers. This was basically another form of slightly veiled racism, as it was all but impossible to have a music career back then if you weren't getting radio airplay. That's one of the key things you need to remember here. In the 50s and the 60s and all that, if you weren't on the radio, nobody knew who you were. A decade earlier, in 1955, the city of Chicago basically did the same thing after more than 15,000 letters were sent to radio stations accusing them of playing quote-unquote dirty music. Almost all of the stations submitted newspaper editorials promising that they'd censor themselves of all controversial music, especially rhythm and blues. And who was making the most rhythm and blues music at the time? 
African-American performers. Many will argue that MTV quietly did the exact same thing in their early days, as performers of color were almost totally absent from the network. Don't believe me? Would you believe David Bowie? I'd like to ask you something. It occurred to me, having watched MTV over the last few months, um, that it's, 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 got, it's a solid enterprise, and it's got a lot going for it. I'm just floored by the fact that there's so many, so few black artists featured on it. Why is that? I think that we're trying to move in that direction. We want to play artists that seem to be doing music that fits into what we want to play for MTV. There's th the company is thinking in terms of narrow casting. That's evident. Um, it's evident in the fact that the only few black artists that one does see are on about 2.30 in the morning or, in, or to around 6. Yep. The thin white Duke himself during a 1983 interview with MTV's Mark Goodman. A few months later, Michael Jackson's video for Billie Jean was released. But even then, if you were a person of color not named Michael Jackson, it would be a few more years before the network was giving you any real airtime. But let's hop back to Ed Sullivan, as when it comes to censoring music on television, he's sort of the go-to. I'm not trying to run him through the mud or anything, but facts are facts. There was the Elvis thing in 1957. In 1963, Bob Dylan walked out on the show after producers changed their mind about his performing the song Talking John Birch Society Blues. The network claimed on that one that they didn't want to make any political statements about issues their reporters were currently covering. The show also made headlines when Jim Morrison went against their ask and decided to sing the line, brace yourselves here, Girl, we couldn't get much higher. So scandalous. From the song Light My Fire. And just know that like many facts of Jim Morrison and The Doors, the Oliver Stone film The Doors completely exaggerates this incident. It was far more tame than the film suggests. Oh, it's such a terrible movie trying to claim bass in reality. It's one of the many reasons I don't like when Hollywood makes movies about musicians. And it's just, you know what, I have to stop here. We will get to why Joel really doesn't like most music biopics but I have a lot to say there, but let's get back to censorship. Sorry, I digress. Timing-wise, the Light My Fire incident was right on the heels of the Rolling Stones caving to the show and changing the words to let's spend the night together to let's spend some time together. So in many ways, you can see the acceptable norms of conservative America based on what you could get away with on the Ed Sullivan show. But let's get away from TV for a bit, but stick with the Stones as they have never been a stranger to censorship. Just two years earlier than the Ed Sullivan incident, in 1965, they released the now iconic track, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Of the many not-so-subtle songs by the Rolling Stones, this might be right at the top in terms of what it's suggesting. However, that is one hell of a riff. <laughs> Almost immediately after being released, conservatives were all over it, calling it, quote, full of tasteless themes. And in many markets, the song was banned from radio airplay for a bit. I mean, a song that big cannot be stopped, and eventually radio stations had to cave, and the track spent more than three months at the top of the charts. Many will cite this as the first time music really won in the battle with censorship, and before too long, Lyrics like Satisfaction would pale in comparison to what was out there. Just one year later, 1966, brings one of the most famous comments in music history and a moment where many people are unaware of the rippling consequences. 
there was this guy. His name was John Lennon, and he was in this really small band called The Beatles. They sold one or two or a few hundred million albums. You probably heard of them. Anyway, 1966 was the year that John Lennon told a reporter that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus, and oh, did a portion of the world get angry about that one. There were record burnings of Beatles albums, death threats, and demonstrations at their show, and there were even a few churches who threatened to excommunicate anyone caught listening to Beatles music. Mind you, this is still a full year before Sgt. Peppers arrives on the scene, and while Revolver and Rubber Soul lean slightly towards the psychedelic, it's still pretty tame but great music from that band. But the censorship. Well, nearly two dozen prominent radio stations in the southern United States banned the Beatles from their airwaves. All of the Beatles. Crazy as it may seem, consider the time and location, and understand that in that area, at that time, public perception was massively important, and a radio station in the South just couldn't be seen as not defending the church. Around the same time, for the exact same reasons, the Beach Boys' classic God Only Knows was refused airplay due to the mere mention of God. You really have to consider the time in history here. I mean, just a few years earlier, the song Louie Louie was banned from airwaves because conservatives thought it was pornographic. Public opinion really mattered, even if it was completely wrong. As you hit the late 60s, radio censorship goes into full swing, thanks in large part to anti-Vietnam war songs and the dominating presence of sex and drugs and music, but mostly the war songs. Barry Maguire's song, Ease of Destruction, was a big hit, but many radio stations banned it due to the context. Country Joe and the Fish had the exact same issue with the classic, I feel like I'm fixing to die rag, as the lead-in famously has the audience loudly spelling out the word fuck, and then it's a really long anti-war song. The band were actually banned from television, as were many of their live performances. Even The Doors had a song banned from radio due to being anti-war, as their track Unknown Soldier was specifically listed as not to be played. Make no mistake about it, since the government controlled the airwaves in the end, they could put massive pressure and fines onto stations that weren't adhering to their wants. And in the late 60s and early 70s, keeping Vietnam in a positive, or at least not negative light, was a huge priority. Obviously, that eventually became a futile effort. So the government refocused, and you can see the war on drugs actually beginning with the FCC in 1971. In one of their more hilarious edicts, they stated and began to fine stations for, quote, not exercising responsibility in picking music. And they used this to crack down on stations playing any music that glorified drug use or pretty much anything they didn't like. But that didn't last long. In 1973 a group of radio stations and musicians sued the FCC, stating that this rule that they had just implemented violated First Amendment rights. The argument was that while the government could ban illegal drugs, the FCC could not make it illegal to talk about them. Obviously, and thankfully, the FCC lost the case. As the 70s got going, things like punk and glam and heavy metal began to rise, and oh, did the FCC and conservatives hate that. And they still do. From pulling Led Zeppelin tracks from the radio, to outright banning metal bands from cities, to massive protests at glam shows, the general public splintered in the 70s, and this is also when album cover alterations really start to become a regular thing. 
Now, I get it. It is very hard to talk about visual art in this medium, but thankfully, Google exists. There are a number of albums out there that had to do different covers due to, you know, exposed breasts, other sorts of nudity, brutal things that people were uncomfortable with, like the Beatles and the Butcher cover. But there are absolutely absurd force changes across every genre. My favorite early cover change belongs to the Mamas and the Papas 1966 album, If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears. The cover seems simple enough. The four members crammed into a bathtub, all fully clothed. So what's the issue? Well, they're in a bathroom because they're in a bathtub and there's a toilet next to them. There's nothing in it. It's just, you know, a toilet. For whatever reason, this didn't sit well with many retailers, so they made a new pressing, placing a hype graphic about the songs that were on the album over the toilet. Well, most of the toilet. But that still wasn't good enough for some outlets. So there's a third pressing where it's completely zoomed in on the band members' faces and you can barely tell where they are. It's hilariously awkward when you compare the album covers to one another and it's one of the most nonsensical censoring that I know of because, you know, we all have bathrooms. That's also why the most prominent pressing of the Rolling Stones album, Beggar's Banquet, it's a simple white cover with the cursive writing. Yeah, that's not the original. The first cover of the album was the inside of a bathroom in a bar. Graffiti on the walls, the whole nine. But wow, they did not like toilets in the 1960s. So I've talked about TV performances getting altered, groups being banned, songs being banned, album covers having to be reshot. The censorship of music really knew no bounds for decades. And to be honest, I haven't even had time yet to cover artists like Blowfly, or Tom Lehrer, or other artists that were decades ahead of the trends and suffered due to the times just being way too far behind. But amazingly, things got even worse as the 70s turned into the 80s, and that's where we'll continue this conversation in the next episode. Now before we wrap the episode, I do of course have your weekly Ear Fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the fact that these days music has been largely relegated to a background task. You're at the gym, you're at work, you're driving, whatever, and this assignment is about taking some time each week to consciously listen to music for the sake of music alone. This week, in light of his tragic, unexpected passing last week, Your listening assignment is Chris Cornell's magnificent solo debut, Euphoria Morning. Don't get me wrong, I love me some Soundgarden, but this album shows him in a completely different light, and it's one that I've loved since I first heard it. Released in 1999, this is basically his work between the hiatus of Soundgarden and the formation of Audio Slave, and oddly enough, there's actually a misspelling in the name here. This was supposed to be titled with Morning, spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, as in sadness over death, but the label screwed it up, and it's listed as Morning, as in the opposite of evening. Anyway, to the music. Each of the dozen tracks are Cornell originals, with some of them dating back nearly a decade. What I mean is that, over the years, early versions of many of these songs have come out, and you can understand why they didn't quite fit into the Soundgarden format. There's this fantastic darkness hanging over all of these songs, but the music often has this wonderful brightness, and the hooks are solid. You also get a cross-section of Cornell's unparalleled deployment of moods. 
from the pop rock of Can't Change Me to the somber, almost loungy When I'm Down to the stripped down early morning feel of the title track to the deep groove of Wave Goodbye. In many ways, you can see this record as Chris Cornell recording all of the songs he'd written over the years, but had no proper avenue for until he went solo. There are just these awesome sonic textures throughout, and it's the way he combines the heavy sludge of Soundgarden with, I don't know, almost almost a mixture of psychedelic folk and blues. It's just a great record. One of the main reasons I love this album is because you're able to better focus on his lyrics, as they often get a bit lost behind the awesome volume and pace of Soundgarden. Not that that's a bad thing. But on Euphoria Morning, you can really hear and feel the deep blues that existed within Chris Cornell. He was able to juxtapose sadness with bright, loud music in a manner few others could construct, and after hearing these songs, you can actually approach the Soundgarden catalog in a completely different way. While Soundgarden will forever be one of my favorite bands... I always have a special place in my heart for Euphoria Morning, as it's one of those magical, gorgeous records that sort of flew below the radar. And if you haven't experienced this one yet, go put your ears on it right now. Thank me later. So that's all for this week. Next time around, we're going to dig into the past 40 years or so of music censorship. So make sure you hit me up on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at TheDailyGuru, and let me know the most head-scratching moment of music censoring that you know. As always, the podcast is available in the iTunes and Google Play stores, along with at GetEarFuel.com. That is your weekly Ear Fuel. Share and enjoy.